but nobody's actually proved that the parachute is an effective intervention. And indeed, there are numerous injuries from parachutes every year. So until we have a proper randomised controlled trial, we can't actually say that parachutes are an effective intervention when dealing with that are protective against gravitational trauma. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a microbiologist specializing in infection control systems, deployments, and novel bioremediation strategies. He started his career studying biotechnology in the 1980s and has had a number of commercial roles from startups to multinationals. With over 25 years franchising experience, he's a former main board director of the British Franchise Association and remains a very practical scientist and has advised many high-profile clients on microbiology and biotechnology. He's a CEO and founder of Radical Biotech, a company that is committed to providing sustainable, green, natural alternatives to the harmful and toxic chemicals used in waste treatment that are poisoning the planet. He's not an eco-warrior, he's a scientist, and he's on a mission. He's also the author of a wildly entertaining and informative blog called Rectofacial Ambiguity, where he takes on the alter ego of Rectofacial, a grumpy microbiologist who thinks writing his blog might be an antidote to all the stupid on the internet. And apparently, Rectofacial is Latin for asshole. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a popular speaker, writer, and science communicator, the radical Sean Derrick. Sean. Hello, everyone. Hey, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today, Sean. I really appreciate you coming on to the show. That's fine. And you've just outed me in the, the um, which I was expecting anyway, but the blog has been supposedly anonymous for a number of years because I've wind up all the anti-vaxxers and assorted loonies out there. Um, <laughs> I don't care. Bring it on. Put you on blast, Matt. All right. Hey, so talk to us about your journey. How did you first get interested in microbiology and how did you get to where you are today? Well, I started off, I read biotech to start with when it was, I was 84 when I started at uni. So it's still a reasonably young science at that point. And I heard about an experiment in 1982, uh, or, or it came to market in 1982, where when I was a kid, uh, diabetics used to, used to get um, insulin from cow or pig pancreata. 
um, because obviously the human stuff wasn't available. It was, you know, some people couldn't tolerate it, some people, religious objections, that kind of thing. Some very smart people started brewing pure human insulin. I thought, wow, that's cool. And then I found out about how they did it. And what you do is you, you splice the gene for human insulin out of a white blood cell, or any cell will do pretty much. And then you splice it into a bacteria and you basically reprogram the bacteria uh, to, what well, to use the technical term, to shit pure human insulin, which is really cool. The really cool bit, though, is let's say you've got, I mean, home brewing, you've got like a demijohn of home brewed wine or beer or whatever, and you've got all these bacteria in there. I think it's similar to yeast, but you've got all these bacteria. There might be half a dozen or even one out of billions that you've actually managed to successfully introduce the insulin gene into. How do you find it? So what they did was they, they, they didn't just put the insulin gene in there. They spliced a gene for antibiotic resistance in there as well. So any of the bacteria that had taken up this, here's how you make insulin gene, would also have taken up the here's how you deal with penicillin gene. So what you do is you've got your demijohn full of billions of bacteria. Let's say one of them has taken up the plasmid that you want. You put a spoonful of penicillin there, piss off down the pub, have a couple of beers. When you come back, the penicillin will have killed all of the other bugs. The ones that you want will have been shagging like bilio and multiplying and multiplying. And literally, you know, go down the pub, have a few beers, come back, and you've got a demijohn full of insulin-crapping bacteria. And just that thing of putting the antibiotic resistance marker on there so you could actually find the damn thing when you've done the experiment. I thought, that is so cool. I want to do that. So I did. And then I kind of moved more and more over to the dark side of microbiology. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I came to it. It was that one experiment. I thought, that is so cool. Uh, and that's what kind of started me on this rather demented path. So you mentioned brewing and stuff. Like a lot of microbiologists that I know, especially around here in, in my city, they actually also tend to be winemakers and home brewers. Do you brew any beer on your own? No, no, I've never done that. A few of my mates do. I did toy with the idea of studying brewing science um, very early on. But no, I mean, for a biologist, to my eternal shame, um, I can't grow anything. I, I, I can't even grow weed, for Christ's sake. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, for, you, know, you know, for a biologist, it's pretty embarrassing being completely incapable of cultivating anything at all. Um, so, no, I've, 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 I've never really tried that. Yeah, I uh, tried to brew a couple of batches and I figured I'm much better drinking it than I am making it. So I just stuck to, I specialize yeah, professionals. in Yeah. So what's the dark side of microbiology that you mentioned? Oh, no, I, mean, I, I had a career away from it. From, I mean, the, the scientific thinking was always there. I, I did lots of commercial stuff. Um, and then probably about 15 years ago now, I was in the buyout team for an ailing chemical company and then move that into high-end infection control, uh, high-end food, that kind of stuff, rather than just boring chemicals. And that started me back on the science again. Then I got more and more into using biologicals to do stuff rather than chemicals, and that's why where Radical came from, where I sold that other business a few years ago and retired. I was shit at being retired. I was driving the life nuts. So I started up something where rather than using chemicals to clean technical term again, clean shit off things. Why not use bacteria? You know, bacteria have been eating our shit for billions of years. 
they're really good at it. When you think about it, all of the natural processes of decomposition and, you know, you, you, you see leaf litter in the garden and then all of a sudden it disappears and becomes soil. What do you think is doing that? Pixies? Magic? No. It's all, all manner of microorganisms. So you can, pretty much any organic matter, you can clear it up using bacteria. You just need to know the right kind of bacteria. You need to know how to grow them, how to put them to sleep and put them in a product that will be stable on the shelf and then make them wake up again when you need to do something. So things like, we have terrible problems with, with fatbergs, they're called, which is restaurants flushing fat soils and greases down drains, blocks up the sewer. So we've got bugs that eat that, they love it. Bugs that will eat kind of used engine oil, for example, out of a concrete floor. Then it's just a case of knowing the right bug, which, which is the easy bit, and then you know trying to wrangle them into a product. And that's it, really. I mean, you know, basically nature's been designing these products for about 3.8 billion years, so no wonder they work. And chemists, of course, find this completely remarkable because they're chemists and they're, you know, they're completely lacking in imagination. So they keep belching out these noxious chemicals and stuff, whereas you know, the bugs are far better at it and you make them at room temperature so it's more energy efficient. Water saving as well is a big thing in that, I can't remember the number, but every couple of minutes a child somewhere dies through lack of access to safe water. We use it for flush toilets. I know that we can't solve the problem of water security globally overnight, but we can do something. So in a business, I mean, over here in, in like good old British pounds, you're probably spending, for every urinal you've got, you're probably spending 500 quid a year in water. So if you've got an office block with three or six urinals on every floor, that mounts up really quickly. So something else we've done is we've taken, um, you know, the sort of fragrance urinal pucks you see, you know, the technical name, those piss blocks. Uh, what we've done is we've taken a piss block sort of substrate and imprisoned about 70 billion friendly, and I hate the term friendly bacteria, they're completely indifferent to us, about 70 billion friendly bacteria in each of these. And these bacteria love their water sports. They love a bit of piss. So what, they, what happens is there's all sorts of other microbiology going on inside the pipe coming out of a urinal. There's all sorts of things living on it because it's a nitrogen source and the rest of it. The ultimate breakdown of the nitrogen is, is ammonia, which smells. So we've got some bugs that do everything except that last step of breaking it down to ammonia. So by releasing these into the urinal, they fuck off all of the other stuff that's in there and munch away on the piss. No more smell. No more smell. You can turn off the water. And that saves money. It saves water. Big CO2 saving as well. So the companies can put this into their annual account saying, you know, we've offset this much carbon dioxide. Because if you think about it, water comes out of the tap or whatever, about 80% of it we send back to the water company's sewage. And there's a cost and there's a quantified carbon cost of turning sewage back into potable water. So if we can prove, if there's a, an office in town, we're saving them, I think it's about £1,000 a month or something. So they're saving that money, and it's eight tonnes of CO2 a year. But they're saying it's crazy, crazy numbers. So when you talk to people, it's a hang on a minute, so I can save water, I can save hard cash money in ready-to-carry bundles, and it will reduce the carbon footprint. Where's the catch? Well, we tried thinking of one of those, but we couldn't, so we just went down the pub instead. So it's, um, I, I think that people are falling out of love with 
nasty chemicals in plastic bottles going around the place on 40-ton articulated lorries, more sort of, sorry, semis. Um, so uh, th this kind of stuff really is of its day. And we, we developed something now, which we'll launch it quite soon, um, where you get a bottle for life made out of recycled stuff. You get through the post sachets of concentrated bug, they're paper sachets with a liquid in, which is quite clever. You put your sachet into the trigger bottle, top it up with water from your own tap, and then it eats everything. You spray surface, it eats uh, muck out of showers. It stops things smelling, all, you know, all, all the great stuff these bug-based cleaning products do. And then when it's empty, you snip off another paper sachet, put it in there, paper goes in, in your paper recycling, fill it up with water, because the only thing we have in common with chemical companies is our water's more expensive than yours. So think about it. Every time you do that, you've saved a plastic bottle being made. You've saved it being transported Christ knows how many miles. You've saved a plastic bottle going probably to landfill. So yeah, we're launching this in a, in a month or so because we've been mainly business to business. But well, hang on a minute. We, we could post these. So also because you're using the postal system to send it, even though, yes, there are truck miles associated with that, if it's just one envelope with five sachets in that goes through somebody's front door, that's rather more carbon efficient than five kilos of plastic bottles full of water going everywhere on a truck. It, yeah, it, it just strikes me as being a complete no-brainer. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what, what we're up to with Radical, because I got bored. I thought... Of all the mistakes I've made in business, which are many, I mean, let me tell you, Christ, I've made some belters. What if I could start with a completely blank slate and just have this big list of stuff that I've screwed up in the past? Right, don't do any of those. So that's, that's kind of where it came from, and it sort of keeps me out of the house a bit as well. So, so your mission then, saving the planet one drain at a time, and you're doing that using pretty much just quote-unquote friendly bacteria and that's awesome. You um, mentioned something. Got a little bit of surfactant in there, but it's made from it's it's um, it's made from coconuts, not not palm oil, just to give it a little bit of. So it's all sustainable. You know, it's, all, it's all made from free range Amish orphans' ass cheeks kind of thing. So you know, it's all completely <laughs> environmentally friendly. So, what exactly is a is a fat burg, and how are they like poisoning and damaging the planet? So, restaurants even though they're supposed to have grease management systems most of them don't maintain them so you've got all these fats all hot fats oils and greases from washing pans and stuff going down the drain of course when it goes down the drain the temperature drops and what happens to certainly animal fats what happens to them when they go cold they go solid and then you've got all these flushable flushable my ass wipes and other stuff and you know sanitary products and the rest of it and the fat kind of binds them all together and if you just google fatberg and look at some of the pictures you get these like bus-sized blockages in there's there one that was like you know 18 feet long you get these massive blockages in sewers and certainly over here most of the sewage infrastructure certainly in cities like london is victorian and it's it's struggling massively so you get these enormous blockages made up of discarded sanitary products and wipes all bound together with hard animal fat and it's a hard water area as well which which doesn't help it makes the it it does things that make the the thing even difficult to shift and they literally send people down there with pickaxes to 
chip away at this stuff. Um, it's horrible. So it's actually somebody's job to go into a sewer and chip away at this massive blockage made of like animal fat and shit and waste product. It looks horrible. Um, so what they're now doing over here is on the principle that the producer pays, if they can prove that your restaurant is discharging irresponsibly fat stores and greases and not doesn't have a proper system in place, they'll start fining you. So all of a sudden now we can go and say, well, we can sort that for about a penny a meal. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of what it works out at. And it'll get the authorities off your back and stop you being fined and the rest of it. And it'll, it'll stop your drains blocking and stinking as well. I don't know if you've, you've ever seen a foul water flood in a commercial kitchen, but it ain't pretty. What's up, artists? We all know that cloud computing has changed the way we live, do business, and stay connected. With everyone using the same cloud platforms, winning and losing comes down to having the talent to build products better and faster. So whether you're an aspiring data scientist looking to build your skills or a seasoned veteran looking to level up, developing tech skills and being comfortable working in cloud environments has never been more important than it is right now. Cloud Academy has thousands of video courses, learning paths, and practical hands-on labs in real-world cloud environments designed to help you build critical cloud skills. They cover everything from major certifications to DevOps to security to programming languages. Cloud Academy is the cloud training platform of choice for Fortune 500 companies and thousands of tech professionals around the world. Don't just take my word for it. Check out the reviews on G2 and get started now at cloudacademy.com. Members of the Artist Loft can lock in 50% off the monthly price for life. Just put in the coupon code ARTIST when checking out. It's a great way to pursue certifications or just build your cloud expertise. Again, go to cloudacademy.com and use the coupon code ARTIST to lock in 50% off the monthly price. So we're wasting waters in, in some ways that we may not even realize. So what's something that we could start doing today to reduce our unnecessary consumption or misuse of water? Most toilet systems now have a dual flush thing where you can either have like a short flush or a long flush, depending on what you've been up to. Um, those are good. If you've got one of the old sort of ballcock type systems, get a couple of house bricks and chuck them in there. Uh, um, and that'll bring flush volume down. You'd be amazed how much water a dripping tap can actually, I've, I've, I've got the figures to hand, but especially if you've got a water meter and you're paying by usage rather than just a standing charge. So things like dripping taps mount up really quickly. Uh, you know, that, that, that can be a lot of water. So domestically, those are the kind of things you can do. Commercially, it is stuff like waterless urinals or you know, sensible water management strategies. I was doing a project years ago for a big architecture practice and they were converting old municipal buildings into like billionaires' flats. And they had this sort of water harvesting system. And the problem was rainwater is full of biology. So what was happening was they were like using this as like flush water, you know, very environmentally friendly. There's all this green algal shit growing all over the, you know, you can see the sparge point from where the water goes into the, into the toilet. Uh, and there's all this algae crying everywhere because they were flushing with rainwater. So I 
invented something that would take care of that. There's another really interesting one, but I, I can't name where it is. But there was um, a project to build a very large water feature in a very large municipal building, can't say what it was. And they had this idea of harvesting rainwater until somebody pointed out, hang on a bit, that was about an inch of rain a year there. So then they had this great, I tell you what, we'll, we'll use TSE, which is Treated Sewage Effluent. So the idea is you get like treated sewage water, like, you know, recovered from that, and you pump it into a big glass tank with an open top in somewhere open to the sunlight. And this is like treated sewage effluent in one of the hottest countries in the world. And you're going to put 500,000 litres of treated sewage effluent open. What could possibly go wrong? So again, I can't have a bug system for them to stop it smelling. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to Dubai. I mean, I, I don't golf, but apparently every golf course there stinks of shit for the simple reason they're using treated sewage effluent to water the grass. So, yeah. Biologists, we're, we're, we're all obsessed with shit, basically, especially microbiologists. I like the interesting play on words for your company name. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, it's radical I-C-L-E rather than I-C-A-L, and it's a bit of a pun. And to be honest, thinking up names, whether it's a product, a company, whatever, it's really difficult. And uh, you know, a mate came up with, oh, oh, yeah, that'll do. And then we sort of brainstormed that from you know the, you know, the roots of um, you know getting rid of chemicals and that kind of thing. So it was just like a bit of a, we thought witty biology play on words, but we couldn't really think of anything else because we're you know we're scientists, not artists. So we have no imagination and we're complete philistines. So you wrote a story that you know, pretty much debunking claims that oseltamivir, known as Tamiflu, was useless and that the studies were rigged. And you managed to really oh, upset, okay. yeah. <laughs> This was great fun. A very, very long-running story where the British Medical Journal, it used to be a journal of record, and it used to be a proper scientific journal, but in the last decade or so, it's basically become a political campaigning organisation. And they had this idea that drug company who, had, who was selling Tamiflu hadn't put all of their data, or all of their clinical trials data out there. And there was this ever-escalating war of words uh, about you haven't released all, all the data, we want to look at it, all this stuff. And it got more and more heated. So, so eventually, Ross said, oh, fuck it, there you go. There's the lot. Have the lot. And they did, a, so the BMJ did an analysis on it. And sure enough, it found that, I mean, and what, this is the press release, not the paper. They were saying that um, Tamiflu is a complete bust. It's no more effective than paracetamol. And the government, the British government, has wasted half a billion quid stockpiling it for a pandemic. A pandemic. Ooh. So I had a look at this. Now, I am not a data scientist, and I don't like stats. They make my head hurt. But, but, but I had a look at this. So what they've done is you think, okay, so now they've got all the data. You analyse all of the data, yeah? No, they didn't. When you do... And there's a thing called a meta-analysis, uh, which is where if you put lots of small studies together, if they're suitably similar in, their, in the way they've... And you guys will get this. I'm, I'm teaching you to suck eggs here. Meta-analysis, you, you know, you get a bunch of similar studies, put all the numbers together, so you've got a big number, and then you, you should get more powerful stats out of it. The problem is if, you know, if all of the studies are dog turds and you put them together, it's not going to magically turn into a pile of gold. What they did was, so it's all about the inclusion criteria. Which studies do we lump together to do this analysis? 
So in terms of the data they use, right, we're not going to have any published studies in it. So all of the good data that have been published, they, they didn't use any of that. You know, it's only from this, this stuff. What else did they exclude? They excluded people who are actually sick when they're in, in, in the trial. Um, they, um, just let me check. Yeah, they, they, it was people who are otherwise well or, as, or had a chronic as opposed to an acute illness. So if they were proper sick, they weren't included. If their numbers had been in a pre- previous published study, they weren't included. Basically, what they did was a, a more cynical person than I might surmise that they picked the studies where basically it would give them the result they wanted. And it's known that Tamiflu is effective. Um, if somebody's very sick in hospital and gets flu, there's a 30% chance it's going to kill them. I mean, flu's serious. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a proper killer. So they excluded all of the people that actually have been proven to benefit from Tamiflu. They excluded all of the other good studies. They excluded a bunch of other stuff. And it was almost as though they were looking to get the result they wanted. And my argument in the article was, these people have got a dog in the fight. They spent five years slagging off the drug company saying, you know, you're a bunch of crooks. You're keeping all the bad data back and only only putting out the positive stuff. And we want to see all of it. So had at the end of that process, that would say, oh, actually, you you aren't a bunch of bastards and it actually does work. You know, you can see that politically that might have been a slightly difficult pill to swallow, if you'll pardon the pun. So I called them on that and basically pulled it to pieces. It took them five years to come up with this. I pulled it apart about 500 words. They got really pissed off. Um, The authors responded to my blog post, dumb, saying, right, if you're so clever, here's a link. You do the analysis. Uh, Well, I've got neither the time nor the inclination to do analysis. It's It's not your analysis that I'm arguing with. It's your crappy inclusion criteria, which are rigged to get this result clearly. So don't don't try blocking with science, boys. It ain't going to work. I then got a response from the editor of the British Medical Journal asking if I would like to put a rapid response in the BMJ. And I had a comment. I can't find it immediately. But there, there was a comment from an academic over your side of the pond saying, why on earth would the author wish to contribute to your journal when your peer review process is so clearly flawed? This was the bloody BMJ. So yeah, I had, I had quite a bit of fun with that one. It's not that I enjoy upsetting people, of course. But yeah, it's so, a so- clear example of just uh, numerous biases committed, right? First, you've got the selection bias, right? Who oh, sorry, no, I think the studies. Call it, uh, researcher degrees of freedom, I think is the polite term for P-hacking and, and, and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so they have a little bit of publication bias and then a little bit of uh, selection bias. And then, yeah, definitely some yeah, P-hacking exactly. going on there. So are you familiar with just, you know, randomized controlled t- trials? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So talk to us about the importance of those when it comes to like doing biological sciences. Okay, so let's look at the ideal world. The ideal world is, let's say you're launching a new drug. So there are these things called the placebo effects, and they are multiple. Very, 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 very powerful. And this is how bullshit like homeopathy and acupuncture works. You tend to go to see the doctor when the symptoms are at their worst. And the natural history of pretty much anything is, it turns up, hangs around a bit, fucks off. And all diseases are, by definition, self-limiting. And, and, and they'll piss off or they'll kill you. Those are the two, two ends of the scale. 
So what happens is you go and see the doctor when the symptoms look like, that's right, take this, you'll feel better. Uh, especially when it's something like pain or you know, infection and stuff. You take the pill, you get better. What you don't know is would you have got better anyway or is it the pill? And, and everyone accredits it to the intervention. That, that's just the way psychology works. So with a clinical trial, I mean, you, you need to do it ethically, but you, know, you have two wings. You've got the people that get the sugar pill, the placebo, and you get the people that get the proper intervention. Now, interestingly, they're trialing the COVID vaccine at the moment. The placebo they're using there is the meningococcus vaccine. So people do get a bit of a sore arm and they do feel a bit fluey or whatever. So the placebo they're using will give a very similar, if you like, a clinical effect in the subject, but it's a different vaccine, which I, I thought was a really clever twist. But the point is, it's blinded, but it's not just it's, it's in that the people who have it, they don't know whether they've had the sugar pill or whether they've had the real drug, but it's double blinded. So the person administering it doesn't know either. Because obviously, if they know that they're giving you the sugar pill or the fake injection or whatever, rather than the real one, they might unconsciously give it away. So if the person who's administering it doesn't know whether it's the real one and the person getting it doesn't know it's the real one, that's how you can usually quite accurately work out whether it's better than placebo. Because then when you crunch the numbers, you've got the placebo group, what was the effect there? And you've got the real wing of the study, which is, okay, let's see, you know, is that significantly different to the placebo effect? So that's how a double-blind trial works. Now, there are issues. That's the ideal world. Back when I was doing infection control stuff, you get all these horseshit studies out where let's say you've got this magic machine and I've seen loads of them that either fogs a room or you whatever to get rid of hospital infection outbreaks or things like C. diff or whatever. So what happens is the natural history of any outbreak is it turns up, it hangs around for a bit, it goes away. That's what happens with outbreaks. And the problem is, you've got lots of things going on. It's not like you can say, right, we're going to treat everyone on this ward, but not on that ward. You can't do that. It's not very ethical. So what happens is, people bring in the... For a start, you get people doing... They behave differently in an outbreak. They start doing things that they should have been doing but weren't, like cleaning things. They start doing things they were doing more assiduously, like hand washing. So they, they change their behaviours. And then you bring in another intervention, whether it's, I don't know, let's say it's with hydrogen peroxide or whatever. You bring in that. If the outbreak then eases, it's the intervention. So people don't report on, oh, yeah, we did this and it didn't work. I mean, they should do, but they don't. Or, well, we did this here and it worked. We did it down the road. It's fucking useless. So only the positive stuff gets published publication bias but that's a known bias we know about that so we can kind of control for a bit but the problem is in something complex with a lot of moving parts like an outbreak in a hospital people tend to credit the intervention a bit like when the doctor gives you the pill and you, and you were going to get better anyway they credit the intervention with actually having an effect when it really didn't and there's something called evidence-based practice as well which confounds this a bit where Going back a few years now, when they were trying to get rid of quackery in medicine, because they, they worked out that wherever there'd been doctors' strikes across the planet, people, you know, the mortality rates came down because there was so much old dogma and stuff in there. It's like, okay, what does the evidence say? 
The problem is you'd often have things where the data said something. Like there was one where it showed that homeopathy cured mumps, which is just completely implausible. It's total bollocks. But because the numbers just happened to come out at random, you know, the, the randomness in there was interpreted that homeopathy is an effective intervention. It can't be. It's water. Well, it cures thirst. I'll give you that. But because they aren't looking at prior plausibility and just what the evidence, what the data is telling them, you get some of these bullshit results. There was a really good paper put out, Smith and Pell, 1980, I think it was. And I'll look up the name and send it to you so, so you can chuck it in the notes. But they're, they're, they were getting pissed off with all this, is it evidence-based stuff? And they're working in, in OBS and Gynae, where it, it is kind of a, a bit more roll, roll your sleeves up. And, and they put this brilliant paper out, basically asking, are parachutes an effective intervention when dealing with gravitational trauma? So basically they said, okay, so what we do know is... We know that parachutes can cause injury, but have a, what we do know as well is, you know, people say that parachutes protect people when they, you know, who, are, who, who may be subject to gravitational trauma by jumping out of a plane. Um, but nobody's actually proved that the parachute is an effective intervention. And indeed, there are numerous, there are numerous injuries from parachutes every year. So until we have a proper randomised controlled trial, we can't actually say that parachutes are an effective intervention when dealing with or that are protective against gravitational trauma. And they wrote it in all the, all the proper scientific languages, basically sticking two fingers up at all these evidence-based merchants. And what they suggested was, well, what we need to do is get all these people who are employed to churn out all this evidence-based bullshit. We put them into two wings. We give half of them a parachute half of them a rucksack, throw the fuckers out of a plane, and medicine will be a much better place you know, for that one simple trial. I thought it was absolutely great paper. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode so when we're out there and we're doing research for whatever data scientists would do a lot of research as well whether it's to gain some industry experience or just some domain expertise what should we be asking ourselves when we're reading some of these research papers to ensure that it's not bullshit that we're reading, right? Okay, yeah, this is, this is an interesting point. When I'm baking anti-vaxxers and sundry other loonies on the internet, the problem is you can always, you know what it's like, if you interrogate the data hard enough and for long enough, you can make it admit to anything. And you can always find some bullshit study that will back up your bias if you fish enough. The problem is, and I know, I know many people like this, they are really quite intelligent enough to read a scientific paper 
on a lot of subjects, especially things like you know medical stuff and that kind of thing. Where, you, know, where, you know, rather than string theory or something really arcane, they can read a paper which is saying something which I know is horseshit, but they can't critically evaluate it. There's a world of difference between reading a scientific paper and understanding it and reading it and being able to critically evaluate it, which is like, you know, back to Tamiflu. I mean, you guys have probably spot that. Hang on a minute. Look at the criteria they've used. Hang on. And the red flag comes up. So critical thinking is really, really, really important. And knowing the critical thinking skills and the cognitive biases that we fool ourselves with all the time, every day, you know, Dunning-Kruger, confirmation bias, all of that kind of stuff. It's really important for, well, not just scientists, but anybody. There's this echo chamber for bullshit out there called, called the internet. And, you know, with my kids, I'm 12 and 8 now. Um, what, what I try and do with them is they ask a question. I don't give them the answer. Okay, how can we know that? And what I'm trying to do the whole time is equip them with the critical thinking skills to be able to separate what's real from the bollocks. They were learning about, uh, the, the eldest, when, when he was at primary school, learning about Noah's Ark from the religious studies teacher. So... Um, it was hilarious. I had this war with the religious studies teacher. I'm a screaming atheist. It was like, okay, so um, why did Noah put all the non-kosher animals on the ark? Don't know, Dad. Ask Mrs. Gowen. Why didn't the dinosaurs eat the sheep? Don't know, Dad. Ask Mrs. Gowen. The one thing I didn't say, it's okay, so the whole world was populated by one incestuous family twice over. Didn't do that one. I'm an eight-year-old, obviously, but that's what I was thinking. And it's okay, so... How long did the flood last? Oh, it rained 40 days and 40. No, how long did it last? A year until the waters went down. Oh, okay. And when was this? 8,000 years ago. Okay. So what happens to a tree if you put it under water for a year? Die, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So how come there are 10,000-year-old trees in California? No doubt. Ask Mrs. Cohen. So, you know, when you've got a teacher who can't handle questions like that for an eight-year-old, you're in the wrong job, love. That was the simple. So what I'm trying to do is teach them those skills. So hang on a minute. Let's just look at that. How can we actually know that? And I can't remember which scientist it was that said, you know, don't fool yourself, it, it, especially if it's a, a research product, the, the project that you're particularly wedded to. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to prove rather than disprove your favourite theory. Don't fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Yeah, I think that was uh, Richard Feynman that said that. It's an excellent Probably, quote. Yes. Um, so one thing we could do to make sure we're flexing that critical thinking skill when we're going over and reading through research papers is to maybe come in to the reading with a set of questions and anything that we come across, actually just sit and think about it and yeah. try to find some contrary evidence to kind of either corroborate it or, yeah, or it's it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole of confirmation bias where you just pull out stuff that confirms your existing bias mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and facebook you know the sort of handheld confirmation bias machine so yeah it, it is important to seek out the disconfirming evidence but also it's about consensus i mean often, often what will happen is especially with a fairly new subject or a new way of looking at something or whatever is the early studies will be a bit shit. And then as it gets replicated and gets drilled down more and more, the later studies hone, hone it far more and you get more of a consensus. You can always find an outlier to confirm your bias, but you know the trick is not to go down that bias rabbit hole and it can be quite difficult. 
especially when you kind of want to believe something and you're looking to back it up rather than blow it out of the water. So this kind of leads me to the next thing I want to talk about is how you've been freaking people out with Bayes' theorem, especially with respect to COVID testing. Yeah, I've been, um, because an awful lot of the kind of businesses we do with um, haven't been doing very much for four months, I've been dragged back into infection control. And what I'm doing now a lot is advising boards on what they can and can't do, because there's so much misinformation out there about COVID. I mean, I've, I've been advising the uh, film and TV community about getting... We've, we've been sat on the couch, binging on Netflix or whatever. So everyone's been binging on all this content. None, none of it's being bloody made. So they've just reopened Pinewood for the... Um, the well, they've, they're not starting it. They, they're out to break break production, uh, the latest Jurassic World movie. There's all sorts of TV production that's now finally being started. So I've been doing a lot of that. And it's really, it's the, okay, let, let me help you navigate through this. There's all this guidance. Some is good, some is crap. And I find that what people have been doing is they've been concentrating on poxy, inconsequential little risks and ignoring the great big bastards because they, they don't, they can't evaluate what the big risks are and what the small risks are. So I'm, I've been helping a bunch of businesses, with that, which is kind of interesting because I, I get to go into lots of different businesses and talk to the, you know, the senior team. It's like, okay, so what makes you think about that that way? But yeah, I, I've, I've done a fair bit on this now and I've blogged a bit about it. And there was talk of immunity passports. And wouldn't that be a fantastic thing? Okay, brief immunology lesson. When you get infected with something, your body's got a bunch of non-specific responses, you know, fever, all sorts of stuff that it will do. And it's purely based on like, not like. This is a, you know, this is a self-cell. That is a non-self. So bang. Deal with it. And then over time, it learns to, the immune system learns to recognize a particular problem organism. This is how vaccination works. Or if you get something in in your childhood your body learns to recognize it by and large you don't get it again it's how vaccination works vaccination does not cause autism it causes adults so the idea is you get exposed to something the body learns how to deal with it so there, there are antibodies that turn up during the infection and then sort of wane as the infection wanes and there are other antibodies that turn up a little bit later but they're the ones that stay in your bloodstream long-term. And if you're re-exposed to whatever infectious agent it was, they're the ones that that put the big red flags up and restart the immune system. So when you get your flu vaccine every winter and they say, right, it's not going to be protective for a couple of weeks. So in the next couple of weeks, you are still at risk of getting flu. Flu probably isn't the best example because because of the way flu is, the flu vaccine isn't 100% protective. That doesn't mean it's 100% crap, which is not 100% protective. But if you have a vaccine against something that is 100% protective, they will say to you, it's going to be a couple of weeks before you're properly immune. But the thing is, when you've got that immunity and then you're re-exposed to whatever the infectious agent is, day or two, and the body can raise that specific response against that specific organism rather than just a general, ah, not, you know, not self must die kind of response. So this antibody called IgG, if you can measure that in somebody's blood, that will tell you that they've been exposed to it. Dun, dun, dun. Wouldn't that be great? 
if we had this idea that you do a simple blood, you know, like a pinprick blood test, it would look a bit like a pregnancy testing pistic thing, except you put a drop of blood on there and then wash it through with the, the reagent that comes with it. And that will tell you in 10 or 15 minutes whether you've been exposed to it. And therefore, one would hope have immunity to it. Wouldn't that be great? Really, really, really attractive idea. The problem is the tests aren't perfect. They aren't 100% predictive. So let's say you've got a test. If you were offered a test that was 95% accurate, yeah, that sounds, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd play those odds, wouldn't you? Okay, so now you probably know the answer to this because you're all bloody data scientists, but if you've got a test that's 95% accurate, we'll talk about accurate in a minute, 95% accurate, and you're testing for something, let's say 1% of the population have, have had it or have got antibodies to it. Of all of your positive tests, not 95% accurate, what percentage of those positive test results are going to be false positives? Go on. i got to bust out the pen and paper for this one. How about you just tell me? 84% of your positive test results will be false. People just cannot get their head. How can a test that's 95% accurate give you a wrong result 84% of the time? And it's down to something called Bayes' theorem, um, which is bloody interesting, uh, but rather inconvenient. Um, so, but people fall into the lottery fallacy here, which is people ask the question, what are the chances of me winning the lottery? Actually, the question is, what are the chances of somebody winning the lottery? Yeah. So let's make this easy. You've got a test that's 95% accurate and 1% of the population have got whatever you're testing for. And the, the same thing applies to, for example, workplace drug testing. This is just math, this isn't, this isn't biology. So if you test a million people and 1% of them have got what you're looking for, 10,000 should test positive, yeah? 990,000 should test negative, yeah? Okay, but the test is 95% accurate. So of those 10,000 people that should test positive, 9,500 will, and 500 will be false negatives. The test won't pick it up. In those 500 people out of the 10,000 that should test positive, because you're testing, so you've got 500 false negatives, 9,500 true positives out of that 10,000. Let's look at the 990,000. So of those 990,000, 95% of those will test negative. So that's 940,000 or whatever it is, will test negative. Those are true negatives. But 5% of those 990,000 will be false positives. The test will come back positive because it's 95% accurate. So 5% of 990,000 is what, 49,500 or whatever it is. So of all those positive test results, 9,500 are true positives, 49,500 are false positives. So of all of your positives, only 16% of them are true positives. So if you tell 100 people that they've got the antibody, therefore they believe they are immune, and only 16% of them 
have actually got immunity, they could go around, catch it, spread it, whatever. And that's why false positives in the case of an antibody test to say that you've had something. It doesn't matter what you do. If you've been told you've got the, I've got friends who've done it, even even when I beat them about the head with this. It's, no, I've, I've, I've had it, I'm immune. So that's just the test. What we don't know is, even if you do have an accurate test and you do have antibodies, we don't know how protective those antibodies are. We don't know what the antibody titer is that you need to guarantee that it's protective. We don't know how long immunity will last. And as the organism mutates, it could be that the antibodies become less protective. So there's all of that stuff that we don't know. So even if you have got antibodies and it's a pucker test, we don't know how protective those antibodies are and what that actually means yet. We'll kind of figure it out over the next year or so, but, but we just don't know that yet. The problem is, if you've got a test, and there are tests that are more than 95%, not much more. If you've got a test that's 95% accurate, 80 and 1% of the population, that's the key thing. It's, it's, it's what's the actual incidence at large. Even if you go to 5%, it doesn't get much better. So that's the issue with those tests. You really can't, I mean, you can kind of test the res- um, rely on the results at a population level. In the, if you want to do a, a bunch of tests and pull, you know, pull the data to work out what percentage of the population might have been exposed, you, you, know, you can take a bit more comfort. But, but the challenge is, if somebody thinks they are immune to it, their behaviours will change. And those behaviours that change will be the ones that, that can spread it on. Is that kind of... Yeah. So, like, in, in a case like... The math is actually quite simple, but it's really counterintuitive. Yeah, it's just this matter of just taking the kind of a decision tree approach and drawing the branches and then doing the multiplication back like that. But in a case like COVID testing, like what's the error that would be most detrimental? Would it be the false positive or the false negative and why? Okay, so there's two things. There's testing whether you've got it, like the the nasal swab they use and and they do the PCR on. So there's that. Let's take PCR first and go back to antibodies in a minute. With the PCR test, it's quite a finicky test to do. The person's technique needs to be quite good. The, 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 there's two things you need to know about basic virology. You've got viral load, which is how much virus is somebody producing, coughing out, whatever. And you've got infectious dose, which is how many virus particles. I take a guess it's in the low thousands, like high hundreds to low thousands in terms of COVID, the amount of virus particles you need to ingest in order for the infection to take hold. With norovirus, it's really, really low. It's like fewer than 10. I've seen numbers of one norovirus particle can, can really screw you up. With different bacteria, there's different, you know, you might need tens of thousands of Campylobacter you might need a couple of dozen E. coli, one of the really nasty strains. So there's the infectious dose. So with the swab test that tells you whether you've actually got it or not, I'm talking averages here, it takes just over five days from exposure to symptom onset. For two to three days before symptom onset, you're infectious, you're shedding virus. The problem is, if you take a swab, just as people are starting to shed virus, you know, they're infectious and can infect others, it's got like a 20% chance of actually returning a positive result. So if you're testing for the illness, if you get a positive, you can be pretty bloody sure the person's got it. With a negative, you really can't take too much comfort from that. You've got to be quite careful. So 
false positives means people are going to get there are a few false positives with the with the genetic test with the nasal swab test they send off to a lab false negatives means that people may well still be spreading the infection which isn't a good look if we go to antibody testing if you tell somebody they're immune to it and they're not they might get it or spread it to other people if people are immune to it and you tell them that they aren't, then chances are they're going to keep doing the behaviours that are going to be protective to the, to the community at large. So they're both bad, but it, it kind of, the question is more, what, what is it you're looking for? Are you looking for an active infection? Are you looking for you know, long-term antibodies that show that there's some degree of protection against reinfection or infecting them? So it's biology, it's complicated, sorry. What about uh, sensitivity and specificity with regards to COVID testing? What does that mean in this context? Okay. So when you, I, I was very lazily talking about accuracy of the test. Sensitivity on, on a test is how likely is it that it will identify a positive? So with this, the sensitivity is if you've got it, how likely is the test to pick it up? accurately and then there's specificity which is if you haven't got it how likely is it the test will actually confirm that you haven't got it so yeah you know sensitivity will they test positive how likely is somebody to test positive if they are positive specificity how likely are they to test negative if they are negative so, you know, you just need to split this accuracy into these two separate wings. That's how the stats will and, work on it. And what does Bayes' theorem have to do with all of this and COVID testing? Well, Bayes' theorem is the thing that, that where you work out that if you've got a million people mm -hmm. and you test them and it's 1%, that, that's Bayes' theorem. That, that, that piece of math has been around since the 17th something or other. So that's so, a, a very old piece of French maths. So yeah, that's 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 based theorem, and it's used for pretty much all diagnostic testing. In that, yeah, okay. So what's the true incidence in the community? What's the sensitivity? What's the specificity? And then you just plug it in, and it'll tell you. I mean, for example, um, for gentlemen, they used to do the the PSA test, prostate specific antigen, which was an indication of whether you might have prostate cancer or not. But but because of this very problem, it was causing more you know more issues than. It, than it was solving because it was incorrectly identifying people at risk and all this kind of stuff. So, unfortunately, chaps, it's the it's the doctor's big thick fingers up your chocolate starfish if you need your prostate exam doing. It's not it's not a nice little pinprick test because it, it, that doesn't really tell you anything very much. So, why is it that as a species we're so damn rubbish with probabilities and statistics and trying to conceptualize evolution. those? <laughs> evolution, it's all all evolution. We're really good at recognising patterns. We're great at patterns. We're great at telling stories. We're shit at numbers. It's just the way our brains work. But it is genetically hardwired in. In that, I mean, you've seen uh, pareidolia, which is where people can see, I don't know, Jesus on a tortilla or a face in a cloud or whatever. Pareidolia. That's because we're really good at recognising patterns. And the reason for this is, if you could recognise the pattern of the tiger's face in a bush a split second before your mate, you were the one that didn't get eaten. And as such, this, this pattern recognition software, if you like, well, a mixture of hardware and software in the brain, is genetically hardwired in.
Because back in the day, if you could recognise a harmful pattern like that more quickly than somebody else, they'd get eaten and not you. It's just the way we're wired up. You know, we think we're so clever with our opposable thumbs and our iPads and all that crap, but actually we're just very clever monkeys. So yeah, like humans were just really just moist, programmable robots yeah. in a sense, right? Yeah. Uh, so you've been involved in some... Yeah, you've been involved in some pretty cool, you know, entrepreneurial initiatives with the one that you're currently a part of. Like, do you have any advice or tips for anyone who's been... Do um, <laughs> I think it's very important to surround yourself with the right people. There's a great book written by a friend of mine called The Beer Entrepreneur. And he talks about having cornerstones. You need your finance cornerstone. You need your sales cornerstone. You need your delivery cornerstone. And then you're the nutter in the corner that's coming up with inventing all this stuff. And something I've, every business I've, I've ever been, it's look, I'm, I'm going to loon around the place kind of with mad ideas. I need somebody walking behind me, scrubbing them all down and actually making it. Oh, what happened with that? Oh, shit, we forgot. Not a good answer. So you do need to be honest with yourself about what your strengths and what your weaknesses are. And I mean, I'm not a salesman, but put me in front of a reasonably senior person, a decision maker, and I can make them buy things. The idea of actually going around and prospecting that and say, no, 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 it's not. that's for people who like being told to piss off. They're called salesmen. So, and it is always men. You know, the women are really good at it, the blokes shit at it. So you need to be honest about what your weaknesses are and surround yourself with people who compensate for that. So in Mike's book, it's, you know, you've got your finance cornerstone, your sales cornerstone, your delivery cornerstone, and you're usually the nutter in the corner coming up with stuff. Also, you need to have people around you who will challenge you and not just say what they think you want to hear. I mean, I always work on them. You know, whenever I get parachuted into to take over a team is it's really really simple it's okay never lie to me do it once and you're gone straight away i don't care how ugly the truth is i really don't we need to establish what the facts are deal with it and then move on and and preferably learn from it and the other one is i don't care how many mistakes you make this month really gonna give a shit don't make the same ones next month you know it's you know, that's, and I've, you know, before I've let people do things which I knew were going to blow up in their face, but they were invested and they really wanted to do it. Okay, you sure? Okay, fine. Well, if you thought about this, yeah. And I've let people make mistakes deliberately. And you knew that was going to happen. It cost them, yeah, but I, the way I view it, I've just invested in your training. So you need to have that kind of mindset. And you need to have the mindset where you need to understand, and this took me a while, you need to understand that your success is entirely wrapped up in how successful you can make your team. It's not about you. It's about the people you put around you and what you can do to make them truly successful. And that's where you get your success from because the company isn't, isn't going to grow based on fanning your own ego. It just it doesn't be great if it did. It's marvellous. But life, life doesn't work like that. And you need to have the kind of culture where people say, hang on a minute, that's bollocks, and then challenge you on that stuff. And they know they can do it. I mean, they probably know not to do it in uh, you know, a shareholder's meeting or something. And they might need to work out that people do have egos and do have feelings, and they might need to just do, do it a bit gently. But you need to have that kind of environment where, where people know they can wander in and just unload on you or, or, or whatever. 
So yeah, that's yeah, that's kind of it. You, you need that culture where people don't sweep things under the carpet. You know, it's, you know if, if you make a mistake, you can tell me, and then we can deal with it. So so yeah, that's kind of the you know the culture that I try to engender. But just be honest with yourself about what you're shit at and get somebody else to do it. So I guess what what would you say are some key traits that if somebody wants to be an entrepreneur, a full-fledged entrepreneur that they should be cultivating within themselves. So one of them you mentioned is just finding the right people, having the mindset that success is not about you, it's about making the people around you successful. Which is difficult um, for entrepreneurs because we're all, we're all egomaniacs. So you need, to, you need to be quite honest with yourself and you know, read up on it a bit and just, just try, I mean, I, it's a difficult one in that without the ego and the drive of the lunatic at the helm, things don't happen. However, you do need somebody with their eye on the brakes and the eye on the cliff that you're hurtling towards as well. You know, you need some, as I always put it, you know, and I introduce people as this, he's the grown up in the room. So yeah, you, you do need some, some, some grown ups around the place, unfortunately. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode so in this ovid era in terms of our entrepreneurship what do you see being some interesting problems that are worth tackling that uh, might be data related or not data related um that would be um, kind of interesting i mean so the blog which is the demanding mistress i don't feel often enough it's about countering the bullshit um with covid that's the key thing there is so much misinformation out there bloody facebook and, and it's this death <laughs> this uh, you know people have no respect for expertise anymore in that uh, they think that their opinion they've pulled out of their ass is every, is equally valid to somebody who's been working in the field for, for years. I mean, there's a, give you an un, unrelated example. I shout at the BBC on the radio all the bloody time. I, I, I think they can hear me. And there's a big issue with false balance in science reporting. I mean, they answer about on things like climate change now. Well, okay, so we've got all of these eminent professionals who've been studying climate science for all of their careers. And their consensus is this. Yeah, but we need balance. We need to find some random nutter who's going to say the opposite, who isn't even qualified in the field. I want a while back where they're talking about um, up in the northeast of England, a scummy hole area. All the kids' teeth were falling out. And there's this um, very eminent academic. He'd been in clinical practice for 40 years. He said, look, we need to put fluoride in the water. This is one of the simplest, safest interventions that will stop this, not overnight, but quite quickly. And I've taken too many kids' teeth out in, you know, in my career. I know that people are concerned about chemicals in the water. This has been proven throughout the world to be the safest and um, one of the most effective interventions we can possibly do. And it's really badly. Oh, thank you, Professor, with your... 40 years clinical experience. Right, so 
what we've done is uh, we've been speaking to Sharon uh, in Redcar, who's been who's come up with completely the opposite view by sitting on her sofa watching daytime soaps and shitting crotch fruit. I was like, no, most chemicals in it. It's not, you know, and that has me screaming at the radio every time. So, yeah, sorry, to go back to the data science thing, just keep cancelling the bullshit out there. Let's get the good studies out there and make sure that people understand what they mean and what they don't mean. And in terms of science communication, what you need to suss out really quickly is the level you need to pitch something at. I mean, I'm equally comfortable speaking to a kitchen porter in a hotel if there's a, a hygiene outbreak or whatever, or a chief exec. And what you need to do, and it could be, you, 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 you never know, the foreign kitchen port you're talking to might have a degree in astrophysics in the wrong language. The CEO could be thick as pig shit, but just, you know, quite good at bullshitting his way into that kind of job. So you need to be able to read people quite well and work out where to pitch your data and what, you know, just, just you know, put it in language the board will understand. Uh, but yeah, just just keep countering the bullshit. There's certainly a bunch of data out there to crunch. So, being an executive yourself, do you have any tips for data scientists for the appropriate way to communicate their ideas when they're presenting to members of the C-suite or the board? Because I know data scientists tend to just get way into the weeds of the numbers and the modeling. Do you have any tips on how we can be effective with our communication? Yeah, you need to. It's it's very helpful when you're presented with options and that can be as simple as okay either we can do this which we think is, is quite a good idea or we can all dip our hands in a bucket of shit and give ourselves a huge round of applause which would you prefer to do oh i think i think i'll do the first one um the, the, the other problem i find is and you get this with computer geeks all the bloody time we've got this fantastic new platform great how's it going to help us sell more shit and make more money well, no, that's not right. It's a fantastic... No, how's it going to help us sell more shit, spend less money and make more? Like, which of, is, is it going to help us sell more shit? Is it going to mean we spend less on other shit? Um, is it, is it going to make us more money? Is it going to make me happy? Yeah, we know, but the, yeah, you need to... No, just put it in big print for the harder hearing. We reckon this could do this, this, and this. Really? How is it going to do that? And, and then you start drilling down to the level of detail or level of understanding that the audience wants. You know, start, you know, start with the money shot and kind of work back from that. And it needs to be relevant to the business in that if it's completely irrelevant, chances are not only you're going to get ignored, you might be looking for a new, what, what the fuck is this idiot doing? You know, you get that, you know, that kind of question. So keep it, Keep it relevant, keep it succinct, but then be ready when, when you get their attention, which if you get your, oh, Owen Mather, one of the greatest advertising copywriters ever, once said, when you're writing an advert, only 10% of people read beyond the first line. So you've blown 90% of your budget on the first sentence. Make it a fucking good one. And, it, and that... I think sums it up. It's you need to make sure you grab their attention. Right, here's here's what we've been doing. Here's what we think. This 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 means. Oh, really? And and then be you, know, you, you you need to know your subject, which of course you should do. But you then need to have like the layers of information. Okay, here's your top tier. Here's your second tier. 
and any of the bullet points you put there, just be ready to go down that rabbit hole because the FD, the, the finance director, will have a different set of questions to the ops director, to the CLO or whatever. So you need to be aware that the different people around the table are there for different reasons and none of them are idiots, but they'll have a different set of questions because they're looking at it a different way, which is another good one, perspective. You need to understand the angle that they're coming from, otherwise you not answer their questions wrongly, but just badly, because often there's a particular nugget that they're, that they're after. And if you don't understand kind of what their role is and what they bring, you have a lot more difficulty identifying quickly why they're asking that question. So yeah, it's just a you know, bit, bit of empathy helps. Thank you very much. That's some really, really valuable advice. I think audience is really going to benefit from that. So you got a lot of patents credited to you. So what would you say is your most favorite one or the one that you're most proud of? The one I do like, I've got one for um, frack fluid. So I don't know how fracking works. What they do is they get a crappy old oil well and they pump a load of gunk down there under pressure. The idea is it recovers and the last knockings of oil and gas down there. So what you do is you get like a, a sort of 80 ton tank and you fill it full of water and then you put some usually guar gum in there to thicken it up a bit and then you put a bit of a bit, a bit of surfactant you know, a bit of soap in there to make it work and of course this is all bug food so you get bacteria growing on all this stuff and it's a huge problem these biofilms in frac fluid so then if you can get get past that you pump it under pressure uh, down into a crappy oil field and then recover it under pressure and you end up with 80,000 litres of oily water and some gas. So you recover the bits you can sell, and then you're left with nigh on 80,000 litres of hazardous waste, which needs disposing of as hazardous waste, because it's hazardous waste, clues in the name. So I came up with a bug system where you could put a bag of bugs. It looks like, it looks like a big bag of coke, actually. Not that I've seen a big bag of Coke ever, obviously, only small ones. You chuck it in the big thing. The bacteria shit the surfactant, so you haven't got to add chemicals to it, and they get rid of all the bugs that have been causing the biofilm. So you're using less chemical. You haven't got biofilm issues. It goes down the pipe like a buttered dolphin. Then you pump it back out again, put some more bugs in. The bugs then eat all of the shit in the water that makes it hazardous waste, you can't put it into a river because it, it, it'll be a bit foamy. But what you can do is you can use it to irrigate fields. So you can take 80,000 litres of frac fluid and take a lot of the chemicals out of it and place it with bugs. Then at the other end, when it comes out, you can then remediate it with wonderful friendly bacteria. They're not friendly, they couldn't give a shit about you. And then you can turn it into wastewater that's safe enough to make crops grow. Cool. So that's a, that's a pattern. I've done similar things for um, the treated sewage eff effluent for these. Uh, they're, they're having this, this sort of competition in the, in the Middle East because we're all sat on a huge lake of oil with a tiny bit of sand over it. Let's see if we can build sustainable sort of little cities and stuff. Um, I did one for them where you could get treated sewage effluent and make it nice enough to use in fountains and put on fruit and veg and that kind of thing. But yeah. The pattern for that one's on the on the frac fluid, which is kind of fun because I got to play in oil fields and stuff and see all that mad Texas shit, which was tremendously entertaining. 
So last kind of formal question before we jump into a quick lightning round, and that is, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? I'm basically unemployable. I haven't done too badly. So if, if you're completely unemployable like me, franchising is a good home. Everybody's unemployable in franchising, uh, which, which is kind of my sort of semi-other career. But but yeah, I mean, just, just uh, yeah, it's it's I'm I'm completely unemployable, and I I kind of did do too badly. So don't you know don't don't fret about it too much. I would say don't don't overthink things too much. So jumping into a lightning round here, if you could meet any historical figure, who would it be? I've always fancied meeting you know, scientists whose discoveries that they don't realise until after their death is not real. Um, I mean, Mendel, you know, the P crossbreeding, he, he, he never knew about that. Um, Ignaz Semmelweis, um, the guy that, he, he was a doctor that ran a couple of maternity hospitals and he thought, hmm, all these kids dying of peripheral fever, it was known as. I wonder if we washed our hands between births, I wonder if, and, and sure enough, and he, he's very scientific, he, he, you know, got all the midwives in one paternity hospital to wash their hands and just left the others as they were. Well, hey, it went away. And it wasn't until 200, oh, 200 years later, Pasteur, germ theory, everyone said, oh, you're calling us dirty bastards, you know, telling us to wash our hands. And of course, yeah, this is what, 200, 250 years ago. Of course, he was absolutely right and, and never knew it. I think I would kind of like to meet Darwin. So I can say to him, have you got any idea how wankingly cool natural selection is? And look at the stuff that Daniel Bennett's doing with like cognition and that kind of stuff and how it's percolated across all of science and not just biology. Uh, but that, that would be me talking to him, obviously. Yeah. So if you could put up a billboard anywhere, what would it say? I would like to get a billboard and either put on it either what would Satan do? or have a big LGBT Jesus and put it anywhere in Alabama. That's what I'd like to do with a billboard. Yeah, L- LGBT Jesus, right in the middle, you know, in buttfuck Alabama or something. That'd be fantastic. That would very much appeal to my sense of justice. Indiana would do, you know, the Alabama of the North, obviously, but anyway. What's, that? What's something you believe that other people think is crazy? Pretty much anything going through my head at any given time, really. Um, no, no, you wouldn't want to spend time in my brain. So what's the most bizarre aspect or quality of human nature? Ability to, our ability for cognitive dissonance, the idea that we can completely believe an idea and completely believe a completely conflicting idea, both at the same time, which is sort of Orwell double think thing don't, don't get me started because you know just you know pick any religion you want i can give you a bunch of them for any of those so what's a academic topic or area of research that you think data scientists should spend some time studying or researching up on critical thinking that's a very that, that's an all-encompassing term if you don't listen to the skeptics guide to the universe start listening to it if you haven't got the book get it it just packages everything that you need to know about critical thinking, analyzing data, making sure that the subconscious biases that we all have aren't creeping in. If, if you do nothing else, subscribe to that podcast as well as this one, because uh, it's absolutely brilliant. And the book just encapsulates all of it. Coffee, would it? They're kind enough to send me a copy, which is very nice of them. My next question was going to be the number one book you'd recommend our audience read. So would you say it would be that one, the 
yeah that that's kind of necessary there is a book what's it called um i contain multitudes which is a broad sweep through the fascinating fascinating world of microbiology it's i mean for, you know, for, for non-scientists it's absolutely brilliant it will tell you things that will freak you out i mean i i, I can pull microbiological facts out but this is brilliant things like there are bacteria that live in rocks that ship pure gold. You know, there's just it's it's you know that there are there are bacteria that can change your sex. It's it's oh, it's it's about yeah. I contain multitudes. Ed Young, my my other favourite is about the uh, nineteen nineteen flu pandemic because that's just gruesomely fascinating. So I'm a, I'm a sad geek, obviously. So that was I contain multiples by Ed Gold. He I, said I I contain multitudes by Ed Young. Okay, awesome. I'll definitely include that into the show notes. So if we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed us to contact 20-year-old Sean, what would you tell him? Stop being a dick. (laughs) No, I I don't particularly like my 20-year-old self. I mean, people said, people don't change. No, you need to continually reinvent and improve yourself because there's always a superior model. It's a bit like women. Women view men a bit like houses it's kind of it's not how it is now it's how it's going to look after extensive remodeling i mean i've been extensively remodeled by my wife over the years obviously very much for the better what's the best advice you've ever received i think in terms of management when you start managing people when i first started on that tangent uh my then boss and great still great mentor said to me right here's what i want you to do Go away and make a list of 10 things, or as many as you want, at least 10 things of things that your previous bosses have done that really pissed you off, whether it's giving somebody a bollocking in front of the team, changing their mind, or just anything that former bosses of yours have done that really, really got on your tits and write them down. So I did. What you want to write? Yes, write them down. Come, Come back when you're done. He said, Right, the art of good management is avoiding bad management. Take that list. Never do any of those things, and that's a really good start. And I've imparted that same advice to everybody that I've ever set on a sort of management career. As you know, it's 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 not a secret science. It's just try not to do bad things, and it kind of turns out all right. So, what motivates you? Greed, sheer naked greed. Um, there's just so much stuff out there that I don't know. I'm probably disappearing in a bubble of my own confirmation bias. And I don't listen to the radio. I, mean, I listen to the news a bit. But science podcasts, especially about disease and pestilence and stuff, and audiobooks, you know, no fiction. I'm, I'm, I'm a complete philistine. So there's, there's just so much stuff. You, you know that you can, you can tell somebody there's an invisible man in the sky who's all-powerful and all-knowing, um, and he's got this list of 10 things, and if you do any of them, he's, he's going to completely fuck you over, but he loves you. But even though he's all-powerful, he's shit with money. And we know this because he needs more of yours, so put some money in the tin. People will believe that, and they will give you money. I'm the person, and when I see a sign that says wet paint, I've got to touch it. So that's just kind of how, you know, how, how my brain works. What song do you have on repeat right now? Montana, Frank Zappa, greatest song ever written. So how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? With caution. Um, 
Yeah, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sure you can put a link to the blog on the show notes or whatever. Always happy to connect with people. If you need introducing to any of my network, no problem, as long as you're not a dick. Um, you know, happy to introduce people around the place. I'm at that stage in my dubious career now where, for me, it's kind of more about legacy. It's more about, okay, so how can I leave the place a bit better than I found it? Because I've done all of the corporate stuff. I mean, I've, I've, I've done all of that, that boring, greasy pole stuff. So I, can't, I, I, I don't need to. Now. So anything I can do to give anybody a bit of a nudge or you know, help them out or you know, whether it's advice, whatever. I, I, I'm, at the moment, I'm doing a lot of COVID-related stuff because the problem that organisations have is they will think, right, we need to do... And let, let's say it's a big organisation... Right, COVID, what are we going to do? Right, let's get Professor so-and-so in. Professor so-and-so has never had a fucking job in his life and wouldn't know commercial reality if it slapped him about and pissed on him. So what you need is somebody who understands the science really well and the bit where, okay, yeah, that sounds really plausible. Here's why it's bollocks. Here's what you probably need to be doing a bit, thinking about it this way. So... A re- it's quite rare to have, uh, not, not just biologists necessarily, but having those scientific chops, but understanding the realities of running a business and the fact you can't just put, I don't know, a massive great condom over your office building and think that nothing's ever going to get in there. It doesn't, just doesn't work that way. So you need somebody who can do the science bit, but also is commercially aware. Of I'm doing loads of that at the moment. So if anyone wants to, you know, reach out on that if they're struggling i'm sure that i'll be able to have a phone call with you yeah definitely i'll include a link to your blog which is i encourage everybody to check it out like i don't like biology whatsoever but i was going through some of the stuff on your blog and it, i was just laughing the entire way because uh, it's really entertaining and well written and i'm sure if you guys have made it this far into this episode uh you get a sense of this yeah he's got he's got he's got talk about uh testicles having taste buds and um what was the other title of the article oh there was um there, there was this uh yogurt advert a few years ago uh when obama legalized gay marriage or to give it its proper term marriage all of the religious wing nuts went fucking mental about it anyway there was this yogurt advert of you know they clearly a young lady clearly in a state of undress um under a sheet eating a yogurt and tugs the foot of her partner and it's a woman ah the religious nutters went absolutely mental about it. And this one literally, and yeah, it's biology. There's lactobacillus, live yogurt. So, you know, so that was one that just came out as a stream of consciousness and didn't even need editing. Uh, I just rip into these people. I make the point that, look, it's not natural. So I debunk all of that. And it really was a stream of consciousness. And I, and I make the point that, look, if, if you're uncomfortable with the idea of two people of, you know, the, if, if you're uncomfortable with gay marriage or proper term marriage, it's fine. You can be as uncomfortable with that as you want. Just don't marry a gay person and it will never, ever, ever, ever affect you. You know, yeah, that they have an equal, they have a right to be outraged. We have an equal right not to give a flying fuck what they think. Um, you know, it's it's 
it does my head in. So, so yeah, that that was that, that got both barrels. That was a lot of fun to write. Um, yeah, I'll definitely include the links to that one as well. Uh, it's, it's 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 quite. I mean, it it just it just does my head in. It's all these all these women are like you know they. they these people are so ignorant that light bends around. They're so dense that light bends around them. It absolutely does my head in. Um, and, and, and claiming that they've got justification from, from their imaginary friend in the sky to be utter bigots while pretending they're holding the rest of us. Oh, fuck. Um, so, yeah. Um, Sean, thank you so much, man, for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show. I really appreciated it. Had a very entertaining morning. Thank well, you so much. If any of it actually makes, yeah, makes the cut, because I can, I can rant a bit, but thank you very much for the invitation.